This is Neil Erwitz, the Director of External Relations here at the Center for New American Security. I'm here with our President, Richard Fontaine, and our Executive Vice President, Sean Brimley, two of my bosses, so I better be on my A-game. Um, let me start with both of you. Uh, as we are closing in on the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, let's look at his national security uh, legacy, if it's too early to call it that. Um, as there's going to be a lot of focus on the domestic side. Are we beginning to see uh, the administration's priorities emerge, and what does it look like they are? Well, I'll go first. The administration's priorities, I think, um, some of those he telegraphed before he took office, and um, in terms of fighting ISIS, uh, modifications to trade, one of the first things that the president did was withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, uh, getting a bit tougher with Iran and so forth. But I think the real story has been where there's been a gap uh, between uh, some of the positions coming into the administration that the president had articulated either as a candidate or as president-elect and the positions that they've adopted since. And so the president, for example, has denounced the Iran nuclear deal uh, as the worst deal ever negotiated, and yet it's still in force, and the State Department has said that Iran is complying with it. Um, on alliances, the president had been very um, hard on the campaign trail in terms of pushing them for more burden sharing, and that has been um, a factor in the administration's approach to our allies in NATO and Northeast Asia. But overriding that has been uh, a, a more fulsome commitment to the security of our allies. And you can sort of see similar uh, things with respect to China, uh, to the Middle East, to Iran, uh, to North Korea, and I think other issues as well. Particularly backing off from the calling China a currency manipulator. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, then, just w before we go to Sean, the thing that I would just add is the interesting linkage that, that the president is trying to make. Uh, U.S. administrations previously have resisted the uh, attempt by the Chinese to link issues like trade with Taiwan, for example, and have not really linked issues themselves. The president's done this rather explicitly and suggested that the Chinese would get a better deal on trade if they were more cooperative in taking a tough line with North Korea. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just on the China thing, it's just, it, look, I think there's two layers to look at this. You can look at sort of Trump and his immediate um, advisors that sort of came from the campaigns for the Steve Bannons um, of the world. And you can say, look, they've, they said a bunch of things during the campaign. Like on day one, they labeled China a currency manipulator. They called NATO obsolete. They, they signaled some pretty clear skepticism about the use of force in the Middle East. Um, you know, Assad as you know, somebody they could potentially maybe not work with, but they weren't interested in, in, that he was in, better in, than in, leveraging, in leveraging out of power. Um, and, you know, you could argue that they've flipped on sort of a number of, of these things. NATO is no longer obsolete. There's apparently an opportunity to make deals with China. And they struck, as you know, with cruise missiles, um, um, the airfield in Syria, which I think I think a, a lot of folks on, on both sides of the aisle support. Um, but there's some question as to whether or not that's indicative of sort of a new strategy. Mm -hmm. um, if you're hearing what... what uh, uh, Ambassador Haley is talking about in, in New York, for example, that Assad must go. Um, that's a pretty big departure from, from the campaign. So I think, you know, it is a little bit too early to tell. The way I look at it is, um, and will be something we can talk about further, um, is that beyond Trump, the person and his immediate political advisors, the sort of the outer layer, you know, the national security advisors of the world, Secretary Mattis over at the Pentagon, Secretary Tillerson, I would argue, sort of mainstream Republican foreign policy currents 
continue to kind of move um, in, a, in a pretty mainstream, uh, pretty mainstream direction, I would argue. And I think as we get to 100 days and, and beyond, as we look to for the first six months, this tension between um, you know these, this powerful mainstream momentum that I think exists at the cabinet level um, is that going to continue to bump up? Is that, is that going to bump up and create tension with some of these you know more aggressive campaign? Uh, promises that you know his base will ultimately um, question him on and push him on. Let me kind of jump in on approach then, Richard. Uh, a little bit ago, you published an op-ed about why there isn't a Trump doctrine, and in fact, there shouldn't be that it uh, arbitrarily locks people into an approach. Are we seeing an approach, be it mainstream Republican approach or something different, a businessman's approach, whatever that approach may be? Are we beginning to see? what would look like a predictable approach, or are we going with something, uh, let's call it strategic flexibility? I don't think we're seeing a very predictable approach for a couple of reasons. One, it's been 100 days, and so any doctrine that emerges is going to emerge after several years of decisions, and it will emerge in response to particular events. So to talk about a doctrine this early is a little silly, although that hasn't stopped almost everyone in town from doing so, including <laughs> the uh, White House Chief of Staff and the White House Press Secretary uh, responding to those who wanted to articulate a Trump, a Trump doctrine. But the predictability um, is also uh, less than probably other administrations at this point because of some of the tensions, I think, that Sean uh, talked about because the president has said that he prizes unpredictability. He sees this as a virtue. And because uh, the president has not come to office with a huge number of fixed foreign policy views. In addition to all that, if you look historically at administrations 100 days in, it would be really hard to predict on the basis of that track record what they would focus the remaining amount of time. If we were having this conversation at the beginning of the Obama administration, you would say troops are coming out of Iraq and never going back. Uh, there will be no democratic movements that take over the Middle East, that we may go to war with Iran, not have a deal with Iran, that we may be in six-party talks with North Korea, et cetera, and that Russia won't be a major factor in the geopolitical competition. But of course, all of those things are not true. Yeah. Let alone if you look at the Kennedy administration 100 days in when we just finished the Bay of Pigs and God only knows what the approach would have been. Of course, or George W. Bush, who came in focused on things other than terrorism, including China, mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly you know, was pulled back to the remainder of his presidency to be focused on the Middle East and on the war on terror. Yeah, and that kind of gets me to think about you know some of the. I mean, let's not let's not um, mince words. I mean, the fact that you had a national security advisor essentially be fired, uh, you know, what was it, thirty some odd days into the administration yeah. is was very you know un, historically un, unprecedented, and you know that kind of that kind of flux in the in the leadership staff and some of the infighting we've read about in, in the National Security Council staff, for instance, as H.R. McMaster and folks like Dina Powell and others. Um, very respected sort of leaders, I should add, sort of come in. That probably hasn't helped um, the situation, uh, number one. Number two, um, just looking at the State Department and the Defense Department, I mean, we're, we are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people behind where the Obama administration was in terms of getting, you know, identifying not just Senate confirmable political appointees, but, you know, the sort of the Schedule C and the Deputy Assistant Secretary level appointees that, that they probably, you know, they should have had in place months ago. So. Even if they wanted to develop a Trump doctrine, um, the, the lack of personnel throughout the national security bureaucracy is going to hamper that. 
Um, it's going to hamper it for some time. It's going to be well into the summertime before we get down to the assistant secretary um, positions. And, and that's really a shame because there's a lot of the administration is losing valuable time. I mean, it's we're, we're going to blink our eyes and we're going to be in the 2018 congressional cycle. And then, you know, time will go quickly and then we're right back into um, sort of a presidential reelection cycle, which is crazy to talk about now. Um, but these dynamics exist. You know, administrations don't have four full years. Uh, to implement their policies. They've yeah. got windows of opportunity, and, and the window of opportunity, at least in the, in the immediate uh, window for a new administration, is rapidly closing. Yeah, the, the, the permanent campaign has never been quite so permanent. Right. Let me dive in a little bit on the, uh, on the lack of filled positions. There are thousands of them. What are the risks there, in, in, other than not being able to form a doctrine? What risks are there in not having a you know, a deputy assistant secretary of defense for personnel or whatever type of position. There's several dimensions of risk. Uh, number one is that it's going to be hard for the Trump administration to move the country in the direction they want to. The more political surface area you have inside of these institutions of national security, for, for instance, you know, the more influence and power you have to sort of move the ship of state. So that's the one thing. The thing that I worry about um, maybe more than that is um, you know, the lack of connectivity to these key levers of national security means that in moments of crisis, the group of folks that are giving um, President Trump their best strategic advice is going to be limited. And I think bureaucracies, if they're not fully staffed with um, you know, Trump administration officials, there's going to be a skepticism in terms of, you know, can I trust the advice that I'm getting? Is the advice being produced by these agencies um, commensurate with the sort of commander's intent, commander's and strate strategic intent, and sort of the left and right boundaries of what President Trump wants to see? And I worry about that. In a moment of crisis, say in North Korea or, you know, a, a significant terrorist attack, um, right now they're operating with a significant handicap, I would say. Yeah. I mean, Josh Rogan for the Washington Post had a piece out just this morning where, among many other things, he was talking about how Matt Pottinger, a, C a senior director at the NSC, is basically the only person dealing with Asia policy, which is which does strike me as a problem. And he's great, by the way, but um, you need a strong Asia uh, team yeah. at the State Department, uh, at the IC, in the Pentagon, et cetera. Well, and you need it not just because of bandwidth issues within the government, but you need someone with whom others can interface. And so we hear pretty consistently that, particularly in Asia, but in other areas as well, there's just not a lot of people to talk to uh, within the administration because with the exception of a senior director at the NSC, everybody else is in an acting capacity. So they have a lot of expertise, but it's unclear how much authority they have to make decisions. And then the other part with the crisis you know, point, which I think is a good one, is in a crisis, you want not just the expertise that comes along with, you know, confirmed people in all of these various political positions. You still have a lot of expertise in the career bureaucracies and in um, the different agencies. But you want people around the table who are going to be trusted and listened to and have authority by the cabinet, um, by the National Security Council principals, and by the ultimately by the president himself. When you don't have that, then it makes it that much harder to deal um, with a crisis in a rapid and pretty and pretty effective way. And look, not to make a, not really to make a partisan point, but I do think it's important to sort of say, you know, I I am disappointed that the administration hasn't sort of risen above this never Trump, you know, this ban on 
you know, national security, uh, Republican national security folks who at, at a point yeah. during the primary campaign and maybe into the general sort of signaled their displeasure with candidate Trump. Um, you know, that's unfortunate because you're talking about several hundred people who otherwise would have been recruited at, at very senior levels. And that's and that, who are some of the cream of the crop. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're part of the A-team, which isn't to say that, that, that there aren't great of people um, um, to recruit from. But when you when you when you reduce your candidate pool by you know, probably 20, 25 percent, that's going to have a that's going to have a strategic impact that I that I don't really see the strategic logic in other than sort of rank um, politics, which is a shame. I mean, I. I I worked in the Obama administration. I, you know, I remember during the primary campaign, that primary campaign between um, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and then Senator Obama, that wasn't sort of this virtuous um, uh, collaborative environment. I mean, there was some real, there were some real disagreements and real, real hard politics. But the fact that um, when Senator Obama became President uh, Obama, that he sought out uh, his main political rival, um, I think that signaled, um, you know, real leadership. Um, and, you know, it's not too late for, I think, the Trump administration to you know, take a second look at some of these folks, because if they're interested, and we're all interested in them succeeding, certainly on the national security side, that's a good list of people to look at. I didn't plant that comment, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't want Richard going anywhere. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, yes, but I also, I think we've all lived in Washington long enough to know that these are inherently political acts and so you know people make declarations of political intent when they take a stand and you know they have to have the maturity and the um and the principle to deal with whatever the ramifications are fair so i'm hearing two key recommendations namely staff up and get past the primary stuff and staff up what else should the administration be doing uh for its next hundred days and it's whatever it is 900 days beyond that I mean, the only thing I'd say, and, and Richard, I'm sure, has wiser and smarter things to say, as he usually does um, when we're talking. <laughs> I didn't plant that comment either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, look, back, a little bit back to the Trump doctrine thing, um, and having been having participated in things like the quadrennial defense reviews at the Pentagon and the national security strategy stuff, um, there are limits to what those documents can do. But I do think it's important that some folks at the National Security Council, so, you know, Dina Powell, or I've heard Nadia Shadl is going to be the senior director for strategic planning or whatever they call that position um, in this iteration. It is important for this team to think um, affirmatively and ambitiously about what they want to accomplish and what they want the strategic contour, their strategic contours to look like, not only for themselves internally, but to project outwards um, in terms of what their priorities are. Um, and that's important because no plan, as we know, survives contact with reality. So as soon as they, you know, but I think that exercise uh, is quite important. I mean, it's it, Richard mentioned this. It's often said that, you know, the Bush administration had this, had one plan and then 9-11 happened and then everything got scrambled. And that is, uh, that's true. But there were things, for instance, in the 2001 Quadrennial Defense Review that 9-11 didn't really alter certain, you know, key investments and key technologies and key shifts in what the military force would look like. And those started to manifest in 2005 and 2006 and were drawn on in, in key moments like the surge um, in 2007, et cetera. So it is important that this kind of strategy formulation and this strategic debate happen. My only concern is that I just, I'm not sure Trump President Trump just strikes me as a very tactical individual. He's really into sort of advancing, you know, in, in terms of like a football game. He's really into getting a first down. And he, he, it doesn't strike me that he cares much about whether he runs the ball or passes the ball or what combination of things. 
Um, it doesn't strike me that, that he sort of operates with this strategy. Um, it, but, you know, we're, we're not talking about football when we're talking about national security statecraft. We're talking about, you know, not, not just one-dimensional chess, but, you know, three-dimensional chess. So you do need to have some kind of sense as to where you want things to go, because when the inevitable happens, um, you don't want to be obsessed with that crisis of the day. You need to have done that kind of grunt work, that strategic grunt work ahead of time. So that's the only thing I'm, you know, other than staffing up, I would recommend that folks really get around the table and, and start to articulate some key goals and objectives. Um, because they're not going to—they're not going to get every single one of those. They, they may get one or two. Yeah, I think there's a lot of head scratching around the world and even within the U.S. government about what America's policy is on various issues. Some of that is because it hasn't been spelled out, and some of it is because it has changed rapidly, and some of it is because different officials have spoken differently about the same issue in a fairly short space of time. So the perfect example of this is: Does the United States have a policy that Assad should leave Syria? Mm -hmm. Um, at the beginning of one week, uh, the word from the White House press secretary was, it's just a political reality, Assad is there, we're basically prepared to live with it. There was a military strike, then it was Assad must go from some quarters, and Assad, uh, it would be nice if Assad went, and in the long run he might go, but in the short run we're not going to do anything to bring that about. Uh, and the answer is pretty important. If the answer is yes, then the course of action on behalf of the United States and its partners and its allies, uh, and frankly, its adversaries like Iran and I think the Assad regime and ISIS, um, it's very different if the answer is yes or no. Um, I think the president could give a series of uh, foreign policy speeches to actually articulate clearly what the policy is on a number of these areas, and I think it would do a world of good uh, in sort of getting folks within the government on the same page and telegraphing uh, to the rest of the world America's intentions. And when, when one suggests such things, you know, normally at least the president likes to come back and says, well, I'm unpredictable, it's good, it's a virtue, it's great to be unpredictable, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. And there's, there's unpredictability and there's unpredictability. There's some ways in which unpredictability can be good if you want to inject uh, unpredictability uh, into the U.S.-China relationship by not telling them precisely when or if we're going to do freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea and all of that. That's probably a good thing. If you want to inject unpredictability by, you know, carrying out a missile strike without telegraphing and hand-wringing for weeks in advance that that's going to happen, that's a good thing. You don't want unpredictability when it comes to, say, for example, to uh, U.S. and Russian military operations that are next <laughs> to each other. Nor do you want to um, telegraph unpredictability uh, when it comes to the way you would or would not count on your allies or you would or would not defend them in the case of, for example, something in North Korea. So if the policy is to respond with military force if North Korea does something we don't like, like test a nuclear weapon, we should be clear, at least privately, about that uh, and preferably publicly. Uh, and if it's not, and in fact the policy is to use uh, economic sanctions and ramp up the pressure and all these other things. I think that's something that uh, is worth them fleshing out in greater detail. And that's tailor-made at this stage of a presidency for a string of presidential addresses. You know, you know we are having a conference at the end of June here at the esteemed Center for New American Security. Neil, maybe we should invite President Trump to come and speak. <laughs> yeah, President thanks. Trump, if you're listening, we would love to have you, sir. Thanks so much for the plug. Uh, and thank you guys for walking us through this. This is if nothing else, an interesting time. Thanks a lot. Thank you.